High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment of our ongoing series, Sammy and Dino. Hey, let's you and I do a song together now. Oh, 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 oh. And it ain't all Candyman and Bojangles. A singer, a dancer, an actor, a comedian, an impressionist, and an author. Mr. Entertainment. Here is Mr. Wonderful. Sammy Davis Jr. My most important meal is breakfast. If I'm not home by then, my wife really gets angry. Dean Martin is just a little bit lazy. Prefers golf to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Dean Martin. Last week, we went all in on Sammy Davis Jr.'s first movies and Broadway show through which he finally managed to break free as a solo artist. In 1956, Dean Martin was similarly liberated. Jerry and Dean's last movie together was called Hollywood or Bust. It opened in December 1956. It was the least successful Martin and Lewis film in years. By then, all of Martin and Lewis's fans knew their partnership was over. That year, Dean and Jerry had made a big show of quote-unquote burying their act at the 500 Club. It was an epic night. They did all their old gags and more. At one point, ambushing waiters who were trying to carry food to tables and throwing salad all over the room. Martin and Lewis's actual last show was in New York at the Copa on July 25, 1956, 10 years to the weekend of their first official gig together. It had ultimately been Jerry's decision to kill the partnership, but when it came down to actually doing a last show together, 
he was overwhelmed with emotion. Jerry Lewis, in interviews and in his books, gives the impression that he never would have quit Martin and Lewis had Martin been less openly spiteful when Lewis started creatively sidelining him. That last night on stage, Jerry looked over at Dean. His face was a mask, Jerry later wrote. Nothing showed beyond that. He would play it cool, even if it killed him. Late that night, after the show, after weeping on the phone to his wife, Patty, Jerry called Dean. Of the end of that call, Jerry later wrote, I think I said, I love you. I think he said, I love you too. But I can't be sure. Reviews of Martin and Lewis were often effusive towards Jerry and dismissive of Dean. Jerry himself thought this was wrong-headed. He called Dean, my catcher, the greatest straight man in the history of show business. Still, Hollywood predicted that once they split up, Jerry would do great. But the jury was out about Dean. His first movie post-Jerry... 2000 Bedrooms, was a big flop. He had always played the straight man, providing scaffolding for Jerry's wild antics. But on his own? Was he a bore? Today on You Must Remember This, we'll answer that question and talk about how Martin found his identity as a solo performer, in large part through an incredible run of movies he made in the late 1950s. These movies were largely intelligent, adult, and reflective of a nation in the throes of a masculinity crisis, a brewing generational crisis, and post-war PTSD. Join us, won't you, for part five of Sammy and Dino. Martin and Lewis were done by mid-1956, a year which, pop culture-wise, was dominated by the breakthrough success of Elvis Presley, whose self-titled debut album reached the top of the Billboard charts and stayed there for 10 weeks. Presley, ironically enough, was a big Dean Martin fan. Elvis had been 14 when Dean had released a single called just for fun, and the teenage Presley had found his own singing voice emulating Dean's. Here's Dean singing the song in My Friend Irma. Tingle, tingle, when we mingle, just for fun. I feel like you can hear Dean's influence in one of the first slow love songs that Elvis recorded, I Love You Because from 1954. I love you because you understand every single thing I try to do. For 21-year-old Elvis to hit it big in 1956, just as Dean, who was almost twice his age, was in an obvious moment of transition due to the breakup of Martin and Lewis, almost too neatly cleaved the decade of the 50s in two. Jerry and Dean had defined the first half of the decade. They were of the generation who had gone to war, then come home, bought houses, started families, and treated themselves to weekends in the city— Nights out at nightclubs where they could drink a little too much and laugh at grown men in slapstick bromance. The second half of the decade would belong to that generation's kids. Rock and roll would take root and plant the seeds for much of the conflict of the 1960s, from the generation gap to civil rights activism. In the fall of 1956, as Hollywood or Bust was doing disappointing box office, Elvis was emerging as a double threat, a rock star and a movie star 
with his first film, Love Me Tender. Love Me Tender was a Western with songs. And in that sense, it was exactly the kind of movie that Dean would eventually find himself most at home in. But that fall, as Elvis rose, it was starting to look like Dean was old news. In December 1956, in an effort to compete with Elvis and all he represented, Capitol Records had Dean record a song called Just Kiss Me. Written by Jesse Stone, who had composed foundational rock single Shake, Rattle, and Roll, the song was promoted to the emerging rock market. It was advertised as being for teenagers only. The teenagers weren't buying. This single didn't chart, and Dean would spend all of 1956 and 1957 without a top 10 record. To add insult to injury, at the end of 1956, Jerry hit number three on the Billboard chart with his own debut solo album, Jerry Lewis Just Sings. It was easy enough for Dean to make records, maybe too easy. His album Pretty Baby was recorded in two days in January 1957. But in order to get anyone to buy the records, he needed cultural currency. He needed either a nightclub act or movies, preferably both. And so in 1957, Dean went back to basics, albeit much better paid basics, putting together a new nightclub act on his own. In partnership with Jerry, Dean had been the straight man, and while he could fill a set with crooning, Sinatra was already doing that down the strip at the Desert Inn. How could Dean differentiate himself? He set to work with a comedy writer named Ed Simmons. Simmons helped Dean flesh out a drunk character, modeled a little bit on a part he had played opposite Jerry in their film The Stooge, and a little bit on the comedian Joe E. Lewis, a Sinatra pal who was known for jokes like, you're not too drunk if you can lie on the floor without holding on. That spring, Dean began trying out the new act at the Copa Room at the Sands Casino in Las Vegas. He presented himself as a guy who had been so busy drinking that he'd forgotten he had a show to do who wanted to get through his obligation as quickly as possible, with as little embarrassment as possible, and then get back to having fun. So he'd rush through a set of what were now his signature songs, That's Amore, Sway, Memories Are Made of This, tell a few self-deprecating jokes, and 40 minutes after taking the stage, he'd be back on the casino floor, dealing blackjack. What became apparent is that audiences loved him. Audiences who came to Vegas wished they were him. And the short sets just made them come back for more. The first shows went so well that Dean soon found himself locked into a five-year contract for two six-week runs at the Copa per year. Secure in the knowledge that he'd always have Vegas, Dean accepted a huge pay cut in exchange for his first meaty role in a really good movie. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.
The Young Lions was 20th Century Fox's answer to From Here to Eternity, an epic about World War II that reflected the post-war masculinity crisis based on a best-selling novel with parts for lots of young, hot stars. Or older, washed-up stars in need of a new look, which was the case with Frank Sinatra, who had won an Oscar for co-starring in Eternity. The big draws in The Young Lions were Marlon Brando and Montgomery Clift, two of the key faces of the new, more emotionally realistic school of acting that had already changed American films for the better over the first half of the decade. Sinatra had been considered washed up before eternity, and Dean was in a similar boat here, with the difference being that it was hard to call Dean Martin washed up as a movie star because no one had taken his work in movies seriously to begin with. But he also wasn't Tony Randall, the soon-to-be face of Wasp Neurosis, who was originally cast in Young Lions as an entertainer who tries to avoid combat and then finds himself liberating a concentration camp. Then Clift went and saw Randall's film debut, the sex farce Oh Men, Oh Women, and begged director Edward Dimitrik to cast anyone but Tony Randall as his scene partner. Dean was offered the part for a total salary, that was less than what he'd make in a week at the Sands. Dean was terrified to do the part. Shooting on location in France, he ended up bonding with his co-stars, Brando and Clift. These titans of American acting coached Dean through his most challenging scenes. Clift became an especially close friend, and in the years to come, Dean would be there for him as he battled his addictions and his sexuality over the course of the rest of his short life. Young Lions is a fascinating movie, a war epic that spends most of its running time avoiding depicting the war. Dean's character does everything he can to avoid active duty. Clifts has to fight his fellow soldiers in basic training in order to prove his manhood. These are both microcosms of two reasons why, and the film depicts this, by the time Americans got close enough to the concentration camps to see for themselves how bad they were, it was too late. And yet, there was still killing to do. The Young Lion's last scene set in Germany is one of desperate futility. Marlon Brando's Nazi soldier has stumbled into a death camp, lost his will to live, and smashed his gun. And then Dean and Clift encounter him, and, unable to see the glimmer of humanity that we've just seen, they recognize him as a kraut, and Dean kills him. So much time has been wasted, and then suddenly, it's too late for salvation. The haunting tone with which all of this plays out suggests that, despite the fact that our American heroes make it home in one piece, Something has fractured that isn't easily put back together. A devastating statement on a recent past that wasn't even past. The Young Lions struck a nerve and became one of the biggest hits of 1958. Its success changed how Dean was perceived. It, in essence, gave him a serious movie acting career. The one thing Dean didn't like about making The Young Lions was shooting in France, which he vocally disparaged in the press. But at that moment, he may have needed a breather from his home life. To promote The Young Lions, Dean and his wife, Jean, agreed to be interviewed in their home for Edward R. Murrow's show, Person to Person. Dean was on his best behavior. He even said something nice about Jerry. Dean, what do you regard as the biggest break of your life? Well, outside of meeting my wife, Jeannie, I, I think the biggest and the most wonderful break of my life was meeting Jerry, Jerry Lewis. We had uh, 10 wonderful, great years, and I enjoyed every, every minute of it, and I think that was a real lucky, lucky break for me. If you watch this clip on YouTube, 
You'll see Jean Martin rolling her eyes as her husband concludes this platitude. At this point in their marriage, Jean was spending a lot of time being a good sport. And perhaps this was more than she could take. A year earlier in 1957, Dean's kids from his previous marriage had come to live with him and Jean, who had given birth to three of her own kids in the eight years since their wedding. Dean's first wife, Betty, had had a rough go of it. She had shown signs of alcoholism before the divorce, and after Dean left her, she felt she had ample reason to drink. Her loneliness and the stress of raising four kids on her own were bad enough, but the straw that broke the camel's back turned out to be Dean's ever-messy finances. At one point, the IRS claimed he and Jerry owed $600,000 in back taxes. The tax collectors tried to get $100,000 of the total from Betty, who didn't have it. So the IRS seized the house that Betty had been living in with her kids. This was the start of a downward spiral. Shortly after they lost their house, Confidential Magazine ran a hit piece titled Memo to Dean Martin, in which the tabloid described Dean's ex-wife as, quote, one of the hardest drinkers in all of Los Angeles and claimed his kids were, quote, living on a pot of spaghetti for as long as a week at a time while Betty tosses champagne binges for her hoodlum friends on the $3,500 a month you give her. After that, Dean cut off Betty's alimony. Betty woke up her kids in the middle of the night and drove them to Vegas, where she had bought a ranch. But when they got to the ranch, it turned out to be, as daughter Dina described it, just sand with a chain-link fence and bunk beds. They didn't last there long. And after that, Betty and the kids ended up bouncing between increasingly cramped borrowed rooms lent by Betty's friends. Finally, one day, Betty dropped her kids off at her sister's house, and then for several days, she disappeared. The overwhelmed sister couldn't afford to feed all these hungry mouths. So when it seemed like their mom wasn't going to come back, she took them to their dad's new house. Dean and Jean had moved into a massive mansion, right next door to Tony Curtis and Janet Lee. I've been half expecting you, said Dean when they arrived explaining that the private eye he hired to watch his kids had told him that their mother had disappeared. Betty's sister was shocked that Dean had known what was going on with his children, that even before Betty took off, she was taking her kids with her to watering holes like Barney's Beanery every day instead of to school, and yet he hadn't intervened. Betty would pop in and out of her kids' lives going forward, but they would never live with her again. They arrived at their father's house with their worldly possessions, which consisted of three boxes of clothes, some of which were in pretty shabby shape. Dean's daughter, Dina, has written about her memory of standing in the foyer of her father's mansion while Jean picked through the clothes and made determinations as to each item's value. She'd hold up a shirt and say, this looks clean, we'll keep it. To others, she said, this can go to goodwill. Dina writes in her memoir that she didn't consider Dean to be a good father, but he wasn't a wholly absent father. He was weirdly a homebody, so at least he was often around. He'd spend a lot of nights when he wasn't working at his house where his kids happened to live. He'd trudge home from the movie studio or the recording studio and head straight for the kitchen, grab a piece of Wonder Bread and make a folded butter sandwich and take that into the den where he'd doze off in front of the TV. Before dinner, Jean would wake him up and escort him into the home bar 
where they'd have a cocktail and some husband and wife alone time. Next on the schedule was 30 minutes of playtime with the kids, followed by a sit-down family dinner cooked by hired help or grandparents. Dean couldn't get enough of traditional Italian food. Then, whenever he could sneak away to his den, he'd disappear. The kids weren't to take this personally. At countless parties at his house, Gene would continue hosting for hours after Dean had snuck off to fall asleep. There was no nightclub he found more satisfying than catching an old Western on TV. After the sexual glow had worn off of his second marriage, his ideal night in the sack meant an early bedtime by himself. This was one aspect of Dean's personality that clashed with that of Frank Sinatra. Dean had cultivated the persona of a drunk, but he was rarely seen out of control. In fact, late at night, he was rarely seen. When out with a big boozer like Frank, Dean would often find a way to make an exit before things got too messy. Dean used to joke that he kept up with Frank by tossing every third drink into a potted plant. He'd often downplay the actual intimacy between he and Frank. Dean once said that all he and Sinatra talked about were movies. Dean's daughter wrote that her father and Sinatra were like brothers. And indeed, she referred to old blue eyes as Uncle Frank. Frank had made matching diamond pinky rings for him and Dean. And whatever distinctions he wanted to make between himself and Frank, Dean never took that pinky ring off. Incidentally, another guy who Frank reportedly gave a pinky ring... Chicago mob boss, Sam Giancana. That was another major difference between Frank and Dino, their attitudes about the mafia. Any singer who worked in clubs encountered mobsters. As Dean told his kids, these boys own the nightclubs we play in. Of course we're going to socialize, it's just the nature of the business. The mafia loved Dean, but as we've discussed before, Dean was extremely careful not to get too close to the mafia. Sinatra had a deeper relationship with the Chicago boys, one forged during the lowest point of his career when Lucky Luciano invited Sinatra to a convention of wise guys in Havana. When American newspaper columnists found out about this, they sneered that Sinatra, whose brand had been skinny weakling made good who stood up for his fellow underdogs, was a hypocrite because he secretly ran with a pack of big bad dogs. Sinatra embraced these seeming contradictions because he thought his mob friends were underdogs who had just figured out a way to win in a broken system. As he would soon understand all too well, it wasn't like the American establishment was any less corrupt. Not that he would acknowledge the mob's corruption, or even that they were a mob. Most of the American public learned more than they ever should have about the inner workings of the mafia in 1950, thanks to the hearings on organized crime led by Senator Estes Kefauver, which were televised live. With television newly ubiquitous in American homes, the Kefauver hearings became a nationwide sensation. But what the TV audience didn't know was that a big star had made his appearance in secret. Interrogated in his lawyer's office, Frank refused to acknowledge any understanding of organized crime, despite the fact that he had counted men like Bugsy Siegel and Lucky Luciano as his friends and acquaintances. Hell, you go into show business, you meet a lot of people, Sinatra said. You're not going to put me on television and ruin me just because I know a lot of people. Amongst friends, Frank spoke openly of his admiration for the mob and their hitmen, especially Giancana. And according to Rat Packer Peter Lawford, the singer loved to talk about, quote, guys getting rubbed out. 
Turns out, men who traffic in vice for a living are a lot like teenage boys, grossed out by anyone who likes them too much. The gangsters continued to idolize Dean, but the more Sinatra idolized them, the more they made fun of him behind his back. In all things, Sinatra probably cared too much, and that hurt him. Where Frank's music was almost always sincere, Dean's usually wasn't. He did gimmick albums and novelty singles. He sang love songs, but about the upswing of love, not about making a mess of things or the dark thoughts of the wee small hours of the morning. Dean's more generous critics suggest he was spoofing toxic masculinity. Dean may have been making fun of men, although I'm not sure we can say that he was coming from any kind of place of caring about women. The safest thing to say about Dean Martin is that we don't know what he cared about, if he cared about anything. The unspoken tension in a Frank and Dean double act comes from Dean's total emotional opacity versus Frank, who even when playing it cool, is unavoidably wearing his heart on his sleeve. Still, fate, friendship, and opportunities to make money kept throwing Dean and Frank together. Sinatra's first known commentary on Dean was this withering review of Dean's act with Jerry. The day goes lousy, but the little Jew is great. But a friendship had formed between Sinatra and Martin by 1957, when Dean appeared on Frank's weekly variety show on ABC. Sinatra was not a natural on television, and reviews of his eponymous show could be devastating. The Chicago Sun-Times review of that episode reported, They performed like a pair of adult delinquents, sharing the same cigarette, leering at girls, breaking up on chatter directed to the Las Vegas fraternity, plugging records, movies, and the places where they eat for free, and swigging drinks at a prop bar. This could have been a review of the Rat Pack shows at the Sands, which were at least two years off. Sinatra was at a point in his career and his life where he liked to have his friends around and would fight to have them cast in his movies. But Dean actively asked for a part in what would stand as Martin and Sinatra's greatest collaboration. Some Came Running, directed by Vincent Minnelli from an autobiographical novel by From Here to Eternity author James Jones, is one of the best Hollywood films of the 1950s. And the fact that it was also one of the bigger commercial hits of that decade is testament to how much the industry has changed. Sinatra would give his best performance as Dave Hirsch, a veteran who gets drunk, gets on a bus, and ends up returning to the small Midwestern town he grew up in. There, he starts hanging out with a professional gambler, Bama Dillert, played by Dean. Most everyone in the town, especially Dave's businessman older brother, is a hypocrite, hiding depression and depravity behind a facade of respectability and conspicuous consumption. But Bama is who he says he is, and he speaks plainly. When Dave gets it in his head that he should marry the pathetic floozy played by Shirley MacLaine, instead of pursuing his true love, a virtuous intellectual, Bama crudely articulates what the audience is thinking. You off your rocker? Bama, you got no right to say that. Look, I all due respect to Jenny, but you ain't really gonna marry this broad. I am? Tonight. I don't know if you're crazy or what. Oh, Bama, was... please, he wants to marry me. You've got no you right to... Quiet. I'm trying to talk to Dave. But we don't need just your advice. Just be a good girl and shut up. Well, you might as well get Dave. used to it. She's going to be my wife. Man, this just don't make sense. I got nothing again, Jenny. Nothing at all. But even she knows she's a pig. All right, that's enough of that. Come on, sweetie, you go home, put something nice on, and I'll call the judge and then come by and pick you up. 
He's the voice of beyond toxic masculinity, but also the voice of reason in a movie that believes that McLean's character is a lovable whore and that Frank Sinatra's itinerant gambler can be saved, not least from himself, by returning to his quintessential American small town and settling down with a virgin schoolteacher. That 1950s fantasy was turning more sour by the day, and Minnelli's movie actually alters the James Jones novel by leaving open the possibility of a happy ending, a glimmer of a chance at redemption being the only way a Hollywood movie of the 50s could get away with this much honesty about male self-destruction and the post-traumatic hangover of a war that had been completely whitewashed into myth. Some came running, like the Young Lions, came out of the fleeting trend of Hollywood asking serious questions about what World War II had wrought in American society, and particularly, what it had done to men. It may have been the original incarnation of are men okay? This moment of contemplation was summed up pretty well in a paragraph from the novel Some Came Running. This is an excerpt from the audiobook, read by Dick Hill. It's like some kind of a mass male guilt psychosis, he thought. Will we ever get free of it all? Will we ever live it down and get far enough away from it so we will be able to digest it? He doubted it. And then the next war would come along with its crop of cripples and oust us from our place we are reluctant to give up. The narrator of this section is the Frank Sinatra character, who is haunted by reminders everywhere of the wages of war and feels he's the only person paying attention. He becomes obsessed with the idea that America after World War II is heading for a collapse, parallel to that of ancient Rome. What a nation we were turning into. It was like living in the last wild days of the Roman Empire, everybody drinking and discussing and destruction, sweeping down in hordes from the north. We will maintain our policy of business as usual. The location shoot itself with drinking buddies Frank and Dean united in boozy belligerence against the artistic excesses of director Manelli, merited comparisons to a Roman orgy. Filming took place in Madison, Indiana, not far from a hotbed of mafia-run locales like something called the Beverly Hills Club. Frank's Chicago friends, like Sam Giancana, were close enough to visit set. These distractions proved productive. Some Came Running was not only a huge hit, but a high-water mark in the careers of each of its three main stars. The Young Lions could have been a fluke. With Some Came Running, Dean had played key roles in two consecutive hits, both of which would end up amongst the top 10 highest-grossing films of 1958. Let's just say that Jerry Lewis was not in any of the other eight. Not only had Dean proven that he could stand on his own as a movie star, but throughout the course of the year, he appeared in countless TV specials and also broke a string of flop singles, first with Return to Me, and then with his rendition of the Italian song, Volare. Volare, oh, oh. cantare, oh, oh, oh. Dean had scored a hit with That's Amore in 1953 and had recorded a version of Mambo Italiano in 1955, but it didn't even make the U.S. singles charts, and originator Rosemary Clooney's was for a long time considered to be the definitive version. By the way, when Ain't That a Kick in the Head was released in 1960, it didn't chart either. But when Dean's cut of Volare reached the top 20, 
it seemed to open up some kind of demand for Dean to be Dino. In other words, to stop even thinly veiling his Italian-Americanness and embrace it, even blatantly exploit it through one quasi-novelty song after another. His next appearance on the pop charts would come via a slab of Telegio cheese called On an Evening in Roma. In 1962, Dean would release a whole album built around that song and others like it, called Dino, Italian Love Songs. 20 plus years after going under the knife and changing his name in order to avoid scaring anyone off with his heritage, he now found being Italian to be a useful crutch and a lucrative one. Throughout his career, Dino had been compared to two other men, Frank Sinatra and Jerry Lewis. In 1958, he was able to gain an edge on both of them. Dean was now in demand on TV, a medium Sinatra had not been able to master. And in movies, Dean had started to do something Jerry couldn't do. Where Jerry built his movies around the Jerry Lewis persona, Dean could marry his persona to characters that had nothing to do with the onstage persona of Dean Martin. Characters that made the onstage Dean more enigmatic and fascinating. This is what a movie star does. They bring something people already love with them from one character to another, so that the movie doesn't have to work so hard to get the audience to know and love the character. I think Dean Martin was a great movie star in his prime. Was he a good actor? I think he was a good actor in the sense that Cary Grant or Katherine Hepburn were good actors. All three had the ability to make whatever they were in better and more watchable. They brought a reliable presence that you want to spend time around. They cannot do, say, what Marlon Brando does in The Young Lions in terms of transformation, and you wouldn't want them to. Nor do they open a vein for you on screen the way Montgomery Clift or Judy Garland does. But there were times when Dean was able to use a character to admit a personal vulnerability that he understood from his own life, but would never actually directly address in real life. As John Wayne's alcoholic deputy dude in Rio Bravo, an extremely sedentary Western, Dean spends much of the movie in a torn jacket and drool and sweat-stained Henley, open to show enough chest that he manages to make near-total degradation look pretty good. Rio Bravo is on a lot of people's lists of one of the greatest psychological westerns. It's definitely not a western of stunning geographical vistas or big horse action. Most of it takes place in and around a saloon and a jail. Much of the drama of the movie involves whether or not Dude will decide that life is worth living. That being John Wayne's partner gives him enough of a purpose that he can put the past behind him. As Dean put it, the whole thing is kind of a horse opera love affair between Wayne and myself. To cloak the fact that this is a movie about two men who love each other, platonically or otherwise, Rio Bravo crosses the line of 1950s sex panic self-parody in having 27-year-old Angie Dickinson throw herself at Wayne, then an extremely haggard-looking 52, for no discernible reason other than that the movie needs to prove that he's heterosexual. But Dean brings authenticity to his performance of a man who craves the love of another man but is unsure he has the courage to accept it. He's also afraid to go without booze as the crutch he's used for so long. Dean knew what this felt like, not because of his own alcoholism, but because of Jerry. The stage persona made people think that it was natural for Dean to be cast as a drunk, that he must have been method acting. But the real Dean Martin, didn't know the desperation of a man who wanted to drink, but for whatever reason, knows he shouldn't. In Rio Bravo and Some Came Running, the thing Dino played on stage for laughs 
had life-or-death consequences. In his own real life, alcohol was not the problem. These Dean Martin movies of the 1950s epitomize so much of what fascinates me about films of the era. They use bombast and artifice to make an argument in favor of humanity and against materialism. They're about how hard it is to be a man in a country of winners. And I don't mean that facetiously. You try watching The Young Lions and Some Came Running and Rio Bravo back to back to back, and not ask what was going on with men in the 1950s and what it had to do with the war of the previous decade. They clearly weren't done dealing with it. And yet there was more war happening then in Korea with Vietnam right around the corner. This is something that the novel of Some Came Running deals with more directly. By its end, half of its male characters are enlisting or re-enlisting having failed to corner the American dream in their few years home in America between wars. Dean may have the most challenging part in Some Came Running, but as time went on, he did not seem to be looking for increased levels of difficulty, especially after his next film, Vincent Minnelli's adaptation of Bells Are Ringing. Most writing about Martin virtually or actually ignores this movie, which is crazy because he's great in it. One of the songs he sings in it, Just In Time, became one of his standards, and two others should have, including I Met A Girl, which features perhaps the most inspired quote-unquote real-world crowd choreography of Minnelli's career, and Better Than A Dream which would have fit in well with the next phase of his career. Can this be a dream? Can I still be asleep on the couch there? Can this girl be really here? She seems to know by sheer intuition how I landed in this condition. Boy, does she know me? The way that I think, the way that I drink, the fact that I slept all year. But, but Dean didn't care for Bells Are Ringing and it's not hard to imagine why. He liked making war movies, westerns, movies for men, which largely affirmed conventional ideas about masculinity. Bells Are Ringing is Judy Holliday's show. It's on a long list of my favorite films of all time because her performance is totally bonkers and because the movie is an outlier for its era as a completely sincere statement on female insecurity and desire. Judy Holliday's character is the protagonist of this movie. She's the one that moves the action along. And Dean Martin is the object of her desire. I wish he had made more movies in which he let an actress take the lead. But I understand why he didn't. First of all, there weren't a ton of movies like that getting made so there was no pressure for him to make them and scant opportunity. And second, playing second fiddle to an eccentric female star was a little bit too much like playing second fiddle to Jerry Lewis. If Dean had proven anything by 1959, it was that he didn't need a partner, and that lack of neediness would prove to be the key to his success in the coming years within an ensemble. On January 28, 1959, Frank Sinatra joined Dean Martin on stage in Vegas for the first time. And with that, what became known as the Rat Pack began to come together. Next week, we'll talk about that and the roles Sammy and Dino played on either side of Sinatra in this last gasp of middle-aged man cool. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. 
Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. Our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. We are on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, you must RememberThisPodcast.com. You can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website, you can also find merch like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes coloring book. Perfect for the holidays. At patreon.com slash Karina Longworth, you can support the podcast and get lots of bonus content. You must remember this content, including scripts or transcripts of our full archive, and sometimes glimpses into other aspects of my life. Proceeds from Patreon go to help pay all of the people who work on the show named above. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find it. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all-new tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University, Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today.